Welcome to Fatherhood Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Kelly, and I'm here to remind you, however you're listening and wherever you're listening, that as dads, we're just like moms. Except we're dads. Ha Thank you for being here on the podcast this morning. I would love to introduce you, but I would rather you introduce yourself. So why don't you go ahead and start by introducing yourself? Thank you, Kelly. I'm Jane Honigman. I live in Santa Barbara, California, and I've done so for 52 years and actually the very same house that my husband and I bought after he graduated from graduate school and we took our first job here. But I am a California born and bred, and I, uh, my aspirations as a uh, child of the post-war in the 1950s was always to be a mother, to be married, and be like my mom. So that's my background in terms of innocence and uh, married at age 21, and we'll be celebrating our 55th wedding anniversary this July and uh, wow. it's been a long haul. And over my years of living, I have grown and learned and developed around the theme of being coming a parent. So that's the only expertise I really have is my lived experience of aging. Yeah. So that's who I am. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about your background in that regard? Because we've spoken before and you have quite an extensive background. Absolutely. Um, again, it goes back to the fantasy of uh, my um, innocence of wanting to always just be a mom and uh, like my be my like my mother. And I always um, was on the path towards that. In other words, I like men. I like boys. I like them to you know have that uh, fulfilled in my side. Mm-hmm. And then then the reality hit after I met my husband and. We became pregnant before we were married. The whole world collapsed around me, uh, realizing that this was full of shame and guilt. And I couldn't bear to tell my parents I might be pregnant. And mm. I was on my way to uh, my junior year abroad to another country. And I simply went um, anyway. And I didn't confront the reality that I was pregnant and not married. And when that whole um, part of my, epi- my that episode of my life turned my whole world upside down, as you can imagine. Mm. So it's about secret keepings at a time when um, I was most vulnerable and young and ig- absolutely ignorant about the facts of life and all of that. Mm-hmm. So my journey was uh, um, turned upside down in terms of I would get married and then have babies. It was the other way around. Uh, we had the baby. Uh, I had the baby and we placed her for adoption and I never saw her. Uh, I came back and then we we did reunite. I, we never lost touch, my husband, my boyfriend and I. And then we then we married. And so then we're living the dream of okay, now you have a you know, marriage, and then they have the house, and now you have the baby. Uh, and we did. And I never talked about uh, our firstborn. And 
had our son in 1972. He just turned 50. And then, of course, it's like, oh, isn't this wonderful? It's going to be just just ducky. And it's like, oh, no, it wasn't. This is really tough. And the other part of this being in isolation, we had moved to this town and didn't know anybody um, right away, and, but slowly, you know, um, did develop a network of friends who are also in the same cycle of our lives. We're all having our babies. And through an organization that I belong to, American Association of University Women, AAUW, it really grounded me in terms of giving me opportunities to meet and um, learn from other smart people in this town. And we, what the first thing we did is realize there was absolutely nothing for young families. There was nothing for bringing us together, but unless you did it yourself and we did it ourselves, we used to go to the park, we sit with our children and we, you know, attempted to be smart. <laughs> we felt so stupid. Um, and this is the early seventies and this is a criti critically important part of American history uh, because uh, it was full of um, tumultuous times, the 60s and the 70s. And those of us who were young then were really shaped by what was going on in civil rights and with anti-poverty. I mean, everything was just happening. I mean, people think it's like new now. It's like, no, 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 no. There's this long history. And that was part of who I was uh, becoming as a woman and as a uh, uh, recognizing myself as an activist. And I never would have build myself as an activist. On the other hand, my friends probably would have said, oh, get over it, Jay. Of course, you're always bossing us around. So, you know. <laughs> um, but then we had another child in 75. And then that daughter it had some difficulties in her health. And I thought to myself, um, what I'm feeling internally in my stomach and my headaches and all this, there's something else going on. This is, this is, more than uh, just an adjustment. And we realized this, this was a time of emotional turmoil ad nauseum. In other words, it keeps on going. Well, my friends and I, recognizing that uh, um, we were prepared for birth in the sense of childbirth education movement had just started, mm -hmm. um, but nobody prepared us for parenthood. And so mm -hmm. the friends and I started this organization here in Santa Barbara called Postpartum Education for Parents, PEP. And PEP is still very, very active and very successful. And its model is on self-help, community-based, peer support, free. And the idea that, you know, we, you listen to the experts, you read all these books, but when it comes down to what are you going to do as a parent, it's like, it's up to you. Yeah. And it's up to getting the support and hearing other people's uh, also trials and tribulations and the honesty that has to come and then getting uh, connected to professionals and resources as needed. So that's a long version of what happened next. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I mean, it's a thank you for sharing so openly this aspect of your, your story. Um, Man, there are so many questions that, so many follow-up questions that I want to have, but then that would require more than the time slot <laughs> that we have <laughs> agreed to. Um, when we first met, I remember you mentioning how the feminist movement also helped shape how you ended up uh, becoming an advocate for 
parental health. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. And thanks for framing it that way. Um, we were all feminists back in the day because, of course, uh, women did not have the voice that we felt we deserved. And that also uh, resonates back to my own upbringing in terms of being raised by a strong mother who herself was a feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, feminism means equity and equality, and that it's not about one uh, gender or other um, being over anybody else. The whole idea is about being together and trying to work things out equitably um, in that fashion. Uh, and so we started our organization, PEP, with the idea that it's all about parents. It's not about women. And that's an important part of my um, generation, is that we were, we were young and feisty and trying to learn about ourselves. And our, that the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, really was the foundation of the feminist movement in terms of health care in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but we realized that it didn't really address enough about uh, the realities of parenting and the, the, the practical every day. And we wanted to make sure that the men were always included. And that's an important piece of um, the conversation to this moment. And that this is not, you know, women are the only ones who get depressed. Women are not the only ones who raise children. Women are not the uh, anything in terms of roles any more than men are. But it's been a struggle for me to to watch what's happened as women. In fact, we have found our voice. Um, long way still to go, of course, like everything in terms of making things equal mm-hmm. and better. But I feel that we've neglected as women advocates for parenting support in the field of mental health. In particular, I'm talking about mental health. We've neglected the men and we neglected the the partner, the person who is the other half of the egg. I mean, without the, the, the baby doesn't come around just out of the womb. Boom, it comes because there's a sperm, and that sperm is very much neglected, in my opinion, over the decades that I, I've aged. Although, as a, a young feminist, I was constantly saying, I didn't get into this alone. You know, hey, Dad, come and help. And, you know, and it's, but that was a struggle for our generation because of role modeling and mm. the things that, men were expected to do and women were expected to do. And it, it exists today, mm-hmm. even though we've changed and things are better. And in this regard, I think we just don't talk openly enough about it. There's still lots and lots of struggles around that area. Does that sort of explain a little better yeah, what I meant? I, yeah, absolutely. So I want to take full advantage of the years of, exposure and experience and wisdom that you've gathered and ask you a very broad question. If you can kind of paint a picture from what you've seen over the years of how fatherhood in particular has been uh, thought about from when you first got an interest in this to how it is now, has there been any progress? Has there been any changes where are we from from where you first started noticing and caring about this? Well, we have come a long way. I mean, that's such a cliche, but uh, um, rules have definitely been shaken to their core and in the Western world, but certainly around the world um, in terms of it's all really based on economics too. We forget 
who's who's the breadwinner, who's the protector. Um, it's no longer just as I I was raised that that was the man. Uh, and my mom stayed home, but boy, did she get mad at that image. You know, she was very much an equal to my dad um, and struggled with that. Uh, but he was a not involved father because of his generation and that <clears throat> role model there. So I had an expectation that I really wanted to marry somebody who would be the equal in parenting. Um, and the, uh, the other piece of that is <laughs> the feminist movement, for, for, for whatever reason, you know, our wave of doing things is that make sure our young men, my son, in other words, the dear man that he is, uh, had no choice, but he was raised by this in this environment. Um, and then our firstborn, I want to digress a little bit and say that our firstborn uh, was raised uh, in Denmark, a very equitable country and culture. Um, and we did reconnect when she was 25 years old. And then she married. And so we witnessed her having um, a family and our dear son-in-law, who is a completely different culture in terms of an American one, but not so much. But that is a good example of equity in terms of a national um, presence in Denmark as mm. opposed to America. So we've had this nice balance seeing this. And then my, our youngest married a young man who's such a fabulous um, example of fatherhood in action. And I say that just in terms of our own family, seeing how much the, um, our sons-in-law and then our son carry the equal, uh, uh, well, I was going to use the word burden, which is really bad, <laughs> the joy of parenthood. <laughs> but it's definitely about communicating. And this definitely comes down to, okay, is it time? this is the ideal world. Let's have a baby. Let's have a family. Let's think about this before it happens. Uh, oh, gee, that's a radical idea because so much time is – you know, passes and you never know when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen. How much control do you have over your bodies and your lives? Not a whole lot. Um, but ideally, the conversation about doing this is planning ahead. And that's why the you know, idea of planned parenthood fits in here. Let's think about preconception. And I want to throw in, it's a very good opportunity to talk about who you are as an individual and then uh, together having the, you know, this union and then creating a, another human being who's going to inherit all these traits from the two, two of you. Um, as far as I know, we're still doing two, just the egg and then the sperm. So it's just the two of you. Um, sometimes, although in terms of modern technology, I have girlfriends who use sperm banks and they, the, the offspring do not know for sure what their genetic heritages are. Sure. But it's very important that we talk about who we are, where we've come from. And then we go into, okay, ideal world, uh, pregnancy. Oh, isn't this wonderful? It's what we call the window of opportunity. Because if we can take the time, those nine months or so, to, to at least do something, I use the quotation marks, you know, plan out our future, you can't. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but that is that window of opportunity during pregnancy. And the changes have, have come about are incredible. I mean, my father certainly didn't come into the, to the labor room with my, when I was born and my, but my husband was there for our two. And then he it was more involved um, and has been since. That sort of speaks to it. Uh, what you asked, I don't 
feel satisfied with what I've seen in terms of the equity on behalf of men. That's why I, my colleague and I have written this book called uh, Factoring in Fathers, because they're still absolutely marginalized. And it's because women are seen as the vessel and the provider of the milk and that the essence of uh, intuition, you're going to know what to do is because it's biologically inherited. No, but that's very pervasive. And again, that's part of the conversation. If we're going to say as women, if we're going to say we want the man there and he's going to be equal to raising this child, then we have to say, let okay, how? Let's talk about this. What's that picture look like? Mm-hmm. And we, we don't do enough of that. And certainly the professionals do not do that. There's not an OB for the man. You know, who's the doctor? Who's the midwife? Who's the, you know, and they say, well, we wait for the pediatrician to, you know, be the, the family doctor. And it doesn't work easily in, in any way unless it's a, a, a planned out, uh, what are we going to call it? team. I'd like the word team approach to that. Yeah. Yeah. There's progress, but we have a long way to go. A lot of what you said there are certainly topics that I have experienced myself in my, in my history. Um, I can clearly remember going to our pediatrician after my son was born and my wife being handed an iPad to take a, um, an assessment to screen for postpartum depression. And there was not a question in there that had me in mind. There was not a person in that clinic who took the time to recognize that I am also a new parent (laughs) and that I am also here dealing with a woman who just had a C-section in my wife's case and a newborn child. And uh, it's puzzling to me that with all of the discoveries of what happens to a woman in terms of postpartum depression and how that can affect her, that that doesn't lead to the natural conclusion of, so let's make sure that we also equip the partner to be supportive in the home. Oh, and by the way, let's make sure he's okay too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hello. That should not be priority number one. But bingo. You know, Kelly, you nailed it with your experience. And I hope all of the listeners out there are, are rolling their eyes and doing some thinking. Yeah, how could it have been better? And it could have been better, and it should be better, that everybody is has conversations. I'm not a keen fan of screening, mm-hmm. because let's face it, people lie. Sure. And so we need to be able to say, um, during pregnancy, you know, you know, where have you come from? It, it sounds like therapy. I don't see it that way. I see it as normal conversation you have with family, friends, and your professionals. And you should be sitting down in a comfortable com- uh, uh, setting where, you know, wh- there's three great words, I think, that that should be um, just integrated into all of this. It's The first is challenges, mm-hmm. decisions, and fears mm. around becoming a parent. And having a family, what, what do we, what are we worried about? Well, the first is, of course, am, am I going to get pregnant? You know, who has the, the right bag and the good sperm, right? Mm-hmm. How are we going to do all that? And then, and then, the, then, okay, now we're pregnant. So now what? Okay. The challenges are ahead. 
economically, how are we going to afford to have a baby? Where are we going to live? How are we going to feed the baby? How are we going to feed us? What are we going to do about work? And again, comparing our culture in America where we do not um, elevate parenthood to the status that, you know, countries like Denmark and others have done, um, and it, it is an economic struggle. It should not be like that ever. And then COVID didn't help. No, um, but of course, it did bring to bear all these issues. So the silver lining is we're finally talking about the mental health aspect of, of life uh, as equals. But back to your statistic, uh, a statistic that relates to what you talked about. It's uh, men are more apt to get postpartum depression if their wife has postpartum depression. Mm. 50% more are, are going to have that struggle, too. But not necessarily. It's not just, you know, mental illness, mental whatever happens emotionally to you. It's an equal opportunity provider. And I'm going to throw another generation in here. I'm a grandma times eight. So mm. I'm now, you know, see the world differently as I've aged. And it is forever. In other words, once you have one child and you decide you're going to nurture and move it on, you do this forever. Mm -hmm. You care forever. It does not go away. And that's like freaks people out thinking, what do you mean? I, what is I get, Yeah. Well, it's true. You do um, uh, see that point where you sleep through the night. It really does happen. You don't think so when you're in the middle of the throes of having a newborn and then yeah. raising a child. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, goes on and on. But the, the joy is that uh, we it's a good thing to get older. That's all I can say. It's a good thing to get older. And then, but I have feelings too. And the struggle I've had and my husband has had while we watch our children and have their children, we're the parents of parents now. And they're not included in these conversations much at all either. But let's just focus on the, the, the man because he's the first one who's marginalized at pregnancy. And it's not okay. And we need to alter that. And how can we do that? I, I, I open that up to your listeners. Yeah, that is that is a, a great challenge and a great mental exercise for listeners to, to engage in, um, particularly if anyone finds themselves in a situation where it is so clear and obvious that only one parent is getting more of the support than the other parent. Or if there is a scenario where you are both struggling and one just feels way more outnumbered, if you will, than the other. Like those things should not happen. shift the conversation a little bit. What is the significance of having this sort of conversation about who we are as people, the story, the history that we come from, the family dynamic that we are all a part of? 
why should that be important for someone who is considering parenthood, more particularly fatherhood? You, you cannot move forward without knowing your past. It's as simple as that, because we are who we are based on our DNA and our cultural heritage and our exposures, exposure to um, history of trauma. And we need to know these things. And a lot of people simply haven't asked their forebears, gee, what was it like for you? Mm. Uh, we do that in hindsight. Oh, I wish I'd asked. If only I'd asked how long my mother was in labor or where my grandmother gave birth or were they immigrants? When did they immigrate? What kind of trauma had they gone through? Did they ever, they ever suffer uh, from st near starvation? All these things are impactful. Um, so we do need to have it. And I'm a keen uh, uh, fan of genealogy. So I love to do the digging around and finding out what happens. And, you know, it's about your roots. Um, if you picture yourself as a, a new parent and you see yourself as a tree and this is their branches and now there's a new leaf because you've had a baby and you're going to branch out, you need to know where those roots are grounded. Mm -hmm. How well are they grounded and what's going on? And it's... It's fascinating. It's detective work and a kind of neutral because, you know, most of these things are not nobody's fault. It's just facts. Right. And you can see it that way. Kind of nice way for families to talk without being judgmental, maybe, because that's a big piece of this. Mm. Um, then you for me, I um, culturally um, had a typical 50s upbringing in a middle class. Uh, neighborhood um, and uh, the the expectation again from the 50s in that time was just to think about the future uh, my mother was a first generation and her mother moved in when I was born so I was raised by a grandma in the home I never knew my other grandmother or my grandfathers at all mm. um, but she had a big influence on me and she was Jewish, and I was Jewish, therefore, half, because my father was not. My mother had married somebody who was not Jewish, and Judaism and, and the culture um, in that particular town and the times and all was just very neutrally American. It was just like everybody had Christmas, everybody did this and that, and the schools, and of course, and there was no, no um, focus on my particular heritage, and I found that fascinatingly frustrating. Mm. So I wanted to know uh, more about my past. And I, luckily my grandmother and her siblings who had immigrated from Odessa uh, at the turn of the century um, in the 1890s, they were alive. And so I was able to learn a little bit more about that aspect of me. My father's side was always very clear, very American. They go all the way back. Someone had already done the genealogy from the 1690s, they've been in America. So that's kind of done and boring. Um, but the <laughs> Jewish side was fascinating to me. And I saw myself Jewish and I was determined to marry a Jewish man because I did not have a Jewish home. Um, not that it mattered. I have a loving home, but that, that was something I wanted. So that's about expectations, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to talk about that. We need to talk about well, what's in your head. Did you like the way you, your family raised you? Did, were you in a happy environment? Is it something you'd change? 
here's your opportunity. Or you think it's your opportunity, but only if it's conscious. There's a lot of unspoken things that happen in us, and a lot of it's DNA-driven. Some of it we can't help. Um, but we talk about that. Uh, and the, uh, the, the wonderful fast-forward to me wanting to have a Jewish home and raise our children Jewish um, is like we're not religious, and my husband can care less. So it's like, okay, but well now we have this kind of a conflict. I had an expectation and we did all the stuff. And then my children are going to have this. They're not raising their children. Yeah, they know they're Jewish, but it's like, okay, whatever. So it's again, back to whatever. Yeah. But it's about conversation and it's about deciding and having that open and honest conversation about it. And, some, and as a grandparent and as I've aged and my grandchildren now you know i can have conversations with them about their feelings about it Mm -hmm. i still sometimes feel hurt and disappointment and it's okay it's okay for me as a grandparent to voice that among people i will not hurt (laughs) in other words to my with my girlfriends and other couples and here's another a lot of our friends are not having grandchildren Mm. so that's another shift that a lot of people you know there's more control over uh, our bodies in terms of reproducing. And a lot of people are saying they're not going to ever have children. Um, I've, um, does that sort of get into what you were asking? Yeah. I digress. Yeah. I mean, it, it does, but I want you to connect it more succinctly for me. So there, there's okay. this conversation that you're saying there's clear value in having this conversation because it helps you identify from what I heard you say, it helps you identify expectations once it materializes in whatever way you can either shift that expectation, but at least you went into it in a more conscious way and not willy nilly. Exactly. But why is that even all of that? Why is that important? So ground you for the traumas ahead. Mm. Because the reality is that the next day something's going to happen because every day is new. Uh, and because now you have a child, it's not just the two of you and your health and well-being, but it's this helpless child who has no voice yet. What if there's, you know, imperfections in the, this, you know, beautiful baby? Mm-hmm. And everyone has that. We all have imperfections. Um, and we need to be able to be ready to anticipate um, this was more than I can handle. I can, it turns out that I cannot have sleepless nights. Mm. I suffer from sleep deprivation. I didn't realize that I have high anxiety. I had no idea that I was obsessive compulsive about things until I had this baby. Mm -hmm. It's like, now I got to be checking every, every hour, making sure he or she's breathing. These are the kinds of things that at newborn stage, you know, you're just getting into and figuring this out. Um, and you, all I can say is you have to figure it out yourselves. Nobody can tell you what to do. And there's a lot of plenty of people who want to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. There's so many experts out there. And so that goes back to if you can feel some groundedness, maybe you anticipate. We know that we've inherited this genetic predisposition to, to depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Good for you. You know ahead. Let's get a therapist lined up. Let's talk to this professional now. They'll know us before we have the baby. And then they'll help us through. And it, I love the word adjustment. Mm-hmm. Every day is a new adjustment. You don't know, know whether the sun's going to come up. You don't know whether it's going to, you know, 
hail on you or what's going to go on, but you still got to get out of bed and you have to feed the baby and you got to get, take care of yourself. You got to get to work. Um, so if you focus on your wellness in terms of the unknowns, and you cannot do that very well if you don't know your past, mm. because if it turns out that your mother or father were not in your lives and you can't ask them now, how did they cope? That's a disadvantage to you as you move forward because you're going to you, you do want that. And we, we need the, the uh, professional health community to recognize this as, as a team dual duality. Some of the uh, best care comes when things don't go white. Mm. In other words, everything seems fine. And then you have example, Kelly, you, your wife had the cesarean. Was it an emergency? Was it unexpected? Yeah, so we're in the hospital and everything is going fine and dandy. Water broke early in the morning. We get to the hospital. She is doing okay. Um, she's having contractions. She has epidural. We are, we're okay. Pitocin is kicking in and she is feeling well. And all of a sudden, little man's heart rate drops. So I remember going into the bathroom that was in the room and I didn't even finish closing the door behind me and all of these people rush into the room. And so now my heart rate is up, is accelerated because I don't know what I am missing out on outside with my wife and my kids. So I hurry up and I get out and everyone is asking my wife, you know, did you move? Did you do any sudden movements? Like what, what did you do? Did you? And she's like, I can't even move my legs. I've just been laying here in bed this whole time. So after monitoring the situation for about an hour and change, the um, the doctor comes in uh, with a team of other delivery doctors and says, listen, there's something going on on this floor uh, today. There's like three or four other women who are about ready to give birth. <laughs> so I'm not going to, mm-hmm. you know, be able to to deliver your baby. However, we're concerned that there might be something happening with them since his heart rate keeps dropping. And we won't know unless we do an emergency C-section. And so my wife was in and out because of, you know, all of the stuff going in her system. And at that point we had a decision to make, but really I had a decision to make. Right. Yeah. Like where do I sign? I'll give the consent. I just want my wife and I just want my baby. So the way the doctor explained it to us was we're going to have all of the different disciplines in the delivery room so that as soon as he comes out, he gets evaluated by everyone. Because the only way we're going to find out if there is actually something happening to him is after he comes out. So thankfully, the moment he came out, took a couple of pictures of him, he gave a nice hefty cry they evaluated him and one by one people just started falling out of the room until it was me at little man's side and my wife was getting, you know, sewn up and thankfully everything was fine. But that moment was very scary. Okay. Bingo. You have just shared something that everybody needs to do. Talk about the birth experience. And what you just share is a trauma. And until you talk enough about it, you never de-traumatize your brain. Mm. And you need to, both of you, understand 
that near-death experiences and be honest and open to how scary, horribly hard that is. And it's, it's always that. Now we focus on the baby. Yeah. Everybody's, every, it's okay because now you have a healthy baby. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. But how about mom and dad? Yeah. How about mom and dad? How are you going to debrief about this thing? Okay. There you go. Welcome to fatherhood. You know, welcome to parenthood. Yeah. And that's why we call it parental mental health. We have to talk about the parents and and their 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 mental health and their mental well being from this for forever, this moment forward for sure. But you can't do that without debriefing about what did occur. And I don't know if you've had a chance to talk much about that with uh, with others. You know, now that you're mentioning it. It's coming to mind that my wife and I have never actually spoken about it in terms of debriefing and trying to understand what we were feeling. She's expressed what she was feeling every time she talks about the story to somebody else. But she and I have not had a moment to unpack the implications of those things that she felt and those things that I felt. Um, It is easier to to lessen the impact because we ended up having a healthy baby. And so it's just easy to just gloss over all of that experience. Well, the end product is we have a healthy baby. So there's nothing really to see here almost, but you're absolutely right. There is so much that is left in there because that was the first, wow, this is hitting me now. This is the first trauma that she and I experienced as parents and since then, we've experienced many more. I know. You see, you see what I mean. And you need to move forward so you can embrace the the future by, you know, sharing and sh- and and crying and and resolving the, that past, the beginning. It's really the beginning, and mm-hmm. it's the beginning of your journey. Um, yeah, people just don't have an opportunity. Um, I used to wish that people would t- ask me, so how was the birth, Jane? How was the birth, Jane? I wanted to tell them, oh, because I had a great one. It was, you know, it was really good. But guess what? I had had a birth prior that I'd never talked about. Mm-hmm. I was carrying a burden of an unspoken previous trauma. Mm-hmm. And it took me 25 years to find out that that firstborn was even alive. Wow. So, you know, you carry these things with us. And so did our parents and grandparents. Yeah. And all these previous traumas, we talk about systemic whatevers, we all carry with us because we are part of a, of a the, the human family. And again, it's glossed over. I think it's convenient to be able to say, oh, let's focus on the on the, the baby now. And that horrible line is, why are you crying, honey? The baby's fine. Yeah. Like, Hello, that is not what should be spoken of. People talk about traumatic birth uh, as a separate, you know, syndrome for having entered parenthood, and it's usually focused on the woman because she's given birth, and men witness this because we invited them into the birth room. Hello, yeah. that was a feminist exercise and we wanted equity. We got it. And then we ignore the man who's been traumatized too. Mm. It's just not fair. And sometimes it's the grandparent. I, in, in, in moving forward, my first granddaughter was us uh, born um, by cesarean. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one in the room with my daughter when they, and I was the first to hold that baby, but she was also placed. I had to place her in other 
people's hands who adopt. I'm sorry, something went wrong. Well, what, how much did you hear me? Okay, so you were saying that your you were in the room with your when your granddaughter was born. Right, and it was a cesarean, like with you, uh, an emergency, and that. But there was no father; there was no birth father there, and she had made the decision to place her baby for adoption, just like I had done, mm. and I was the one who walked that baby out of the room and place it in other people's strangers arms. And I could not be the grandparent. So I revisited another trauma from my past and it happened again. This is not fair. This is not nice. This is, <laughs> it's uncalled for trauma. Uh, and I had no place to talk to anybody about that. But, you know, this is a decision that's made. Find this her. Um, you know, I had to wait another 18 years before we could embrace that child as a grandchild. So, you know, these things go on. So my my phrase now is postpartum is forever. Yeah. It's really true because they like dishes things out to you. You don't know what's going to be happening. respectful of the use of the term trauma because and this is my personal opinion I feel like nowadays um, it's been used very loosely just kind of like the word love is used loosely you know I love you as much as I love cheeseburgers and the two just don't you know don't match <laughs> so I, I think that we have gotten to a place in our culture where um, almost everything can be considered a trauma. So I want to be respectful of the, the, the word in and of itself. I want to get your opinion on what I'm about to say to see if this, uh, in your experience, will, will qualify as being traumatic uh, from a father's perspective. One of the things that I struggled with while my wife was pregnant was that I no longer had access to her in the way that I had access to her before. Her of body course. was obviously changing. Uh, some of her mechanisms had completely shut down and yep. this guy was getting no play. Yep. Then the baby is born. So now what I had perceived in mind as, you know, what was... Uh, preventing me from having access to my wife in that way. Now that little bundle of joy is out. Yeah, he's crying. He don't let us sleep or whatever the case is, but he's out. So she doesn't have, you know, that thing inside of her anymore that is blocking my having access to my wife. But wait a minute. Now she's telling me that when he's crying, her body is responding to his cry. Like it she feels the stimulation in her breast because there's something that's telling her your child is in distress. And so you, so she still feels this biological 
reaction to or response to to this child, which means I still don't have access to my wife. Bingo. Exactly. <laughs> and so I'm so glad you brought this up. So it, it was it was very difficult for me because I was having at that moment I could not understand the perception of seeing my wife as a mother in the most practical ways, even though I knew intuitively she's a mom because Kel, you're a dad. But the way that that was materializing and unfolding and all of that jazz is like, okay, baby was in problem, baby's out solution, but that was not the case. So would that experience fall under the category of trauma or would it be like a subcategory in your experience? So you use the word you perceived and it was my perception and that's all that matters. So (laughs) see, if that's how it makes you feel, then yes. Okay. And so glad you brought up intimacy, which is the, you know, the clean word to use around sex. (laughs) Um, But we really don't talk about that. I mean, it's ridiculous how we don't talk about these things. And here we got this, we think such a progressive society is like, no, we're still so (laughs) hung up on Victorian thinking. Um, But there's so many ways to express intimacy that's not sexually, you know, directly related to the body's having to, you know, do a thing. But we we definitely need to talk about it. Everybody everybody needs a sex therapist. And your next best thing would be each other, you know. You know what? But we don't. And during pregnancy, that's the best time to have sex because you're already pregnant. Okay. So you can't get pregnant again. And there's nothing to stop, you know, having this. And sometimes the most sexual, sensual feelings that that my body is for a woman, my body's finally did it. It's doing it. It's like the guy did it. And he says, I got her pregnant, you know, now we're a thing. (laughs) But we don't honestly talk about this enough. And then it's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. This great thing, this little thing, what did we create? Cries all the time, never sleeps. I just want to have sex. And, and uh, some women get hypersexual postpartum. I mean, they really can. I mean, we don't have any one answer. It's Mm -hmm. about your perception, your feelings. And now you've got to talk with each other, but she's had major surgery and she's going to be healing. And that's different. Nothing wrong with your body. Nobody cut you up, you know, so that's really important to talk about, but you have feelings too. And that's, you know, we don't just ask that basic question. So, so Kelly, how are you feeling? Oh, just fine. I'm just so happy. I have a dad. I'm a dad now and the baby's beautiful. It's like, no, actually I am as horny as hell and I can't not understand what's going on. And there's nothing wrong with me, but there is something. And that's your trauma. It's again, I, I agree with you about using the words kind of wash and washing them out and then they don't sound right. Is it traumatic for you? Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. No, it's about you. And then you plural. Yes. Yes. And it can lead to some good times ahead, but you got to go backwards in time and, and sort of heal those feelings. And I bet you've never really talked to your to your wife about it. Have you? We've, we've spoken about it here and there, but again, not anything extensively because part of the process also is we've gotten, and this has been our experience, we've gotten so involved in our child and he's an only child. Right, um, right now. You know, we've 
we recently experienced something, uh, another traumatic loss of pregnancy. And so we're not going to try again. So our boy is our only child. And so now we're even much more wrapped up into him and all of that jazz. But that is part of the byproduct of becoming at least a first time parent, right? You get yeah. so involved in in the one child's life. And then if you do add more children to that, it's just a continuation, a, oh, yeah. a, a different iteration. So to carve out that time to really talk to my spouse or to my partner, whatever my context is, or to even talk to, to a friend, to, to talk to right. a therapist or whatever, to talk, right. period, that almost feels like it takes a back burner stance than it is a front and center, you know, crucial aspect to having a healthy parenting outcome or parenting relationship. It's absolutely right. And it's absolutely ignored. And why we're as a society have a lot of problems because we do not open honestly uh, up about these uh, intimate and personal and, um, unique because everybody's different and, and special. Um, and then if we do, then we get judged. You shouldn't feel that way. No, well, allow me, right. allow so, me to interject here for a second yes. because what you're saying is absolutely right. Let's be completely transparent. As a first time parent, I did not feel um, that it would have been okay for me to tell people who asked me how I was doing, given the expectation of how happy and celebratory the season of life is. You're a parent. Hooray. Hooray. I didn't feel comfortable saying to someone, I am frustrated that I can't even cuddle with my wife. I'm frustrated because my child won't sleep. I'm frustrated because he wants nothing to do with me. He just wants to be with his mom. That was not the right thing for me to say. I didn't feel like that was the right thing for me to say because I, I felt that culturally the expectation is, Oh, you're just like when you're going to get married. If you feel like you don't really want to get married to someone, but invitations have already been sent out and the date has already been said, the venues are, it is seldom the people who will say, you know what? I am just going to walk away from this. But what do most people do? You post with the pictures, you put on a fake smile, you go through the wedding ceremony anyway, even though while you're saying I do, your mind is saying somebody get me the heck up out of here. It's similar with parenting. Like you're a parent, you have a new baby. Oh my God, that's exciting. The joy, the, the bliss. And no, it was hellish, exactly. but I didn't feel that's that the the niche of society that I belong to would have been receptive to that very raw portrait. But you think it's only your culture and that segment of your society? No, it is so universal. <laughs> it is absolutely stuck in humankind. It is the most basic of all basics. The need to sleep and eat. And get a good night's sleep and have an, have an appetite so you can get up and have a nice day. That's basic living. And you throw a child into the mix, it's like, oh, Lordy. So this is the, the big thing about my generation and my circumstances that we were away from family. We were isolated. We had no support. So we created 
PEP to be artificial family. Mm -hmm. So it's an example where if you don't have family nearby to give you familial support physically and emotionally, then you have to create it. And then back to your feelings where you couldn't be honest and open because, you know, ooh, you know, they're going to judge you. Well, the idea of PEP again is it's a, a forum that's non-judgmental. In fact, the only thing that brings you together is this experience about the same time as having a newborn. You don't know each other. You're strangers. You come from any kind of uh, an economic or ethnic background. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter where in the world this will be taking place. You have to be able to go around the room and one at a time, in confidence, say, in, in a confidential way. I mean, not, not in confidence, but in a confidential way. This is not what I expected. And I really regret that we did this. Boo-hoo, I'm going to cry and tell because I don't really mean that because I love my baby so much. But the truth is, I wish I could redo all this mm. because I'm so exhausted. I haven't slept in weeks and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm like, you know, this is a human experience. Yeah. And again, we're just, we're in such denial. And it's so sad because then we put up these, these falsehoods. And, and so what, what do we want to do? We want to create an open an openness of transparency around pregnancy and, and the, the uh, postpartum entree into life and, and try to put that out. And if you say during pregnancy, I am afraid of this. Yeah. This is my greatest fear. And these are the challenges. We have nobody to back us up with childcare. What are we going to do now? That's a better time to do that. than the baby's arrived. I've got to go back to work. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with this baby. Or what if they're twins? I just had a conversation with someone who just now had two kids, now has twins. Oh, my goodness. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. So you just don't know. But thank you for being so open and honest, Kelly, because I think this is a conversation America really needs to have. And it looks like you're the one who's going to lead it. Because I don't think we have enough opportunity to be open and honest as just being normal people. In other words, there's nothing that indicates that you should have done this better or you should have gone there if if only you'd done this or that. No. Life just dishes stuff out. And then you're surrounded. Now, I I don't know your circumstances in terms of your family dynamics around getting support, but, you know, if you guys as a couple are not okay, the baby's not going to be okay. Yeah. So, okay, so that means – you need other people who can take the baby because you know what? The baby could care less who's feeding it. They absolutely do not care. It just wants to be fed. They just want to be fed and That's they it. want to be changed and yep. they want to sleep. That's it. End of story. That's it. And guess what? As we age up, they turn into toddlers and then they go to preschool and then they go to school and then they, they become teenagers and then they leave and it's like, boom, gone. It's all over. No. You still care for them and you still worry about them and you wonder what's going to happen. And guess what? I think that you had parents too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what are they thinking? Where's their role in all this? Yeah. 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 I, I'm appreciating more and more your phrase that postpartum is forever because I think where the conversation, where someone might disagree with that and, um, you know, being respectful of your time, we'll, we'll close with this. But where someone might disagree with that stance, Jane, is that postpartum is being defined as just the biological differences, the biological effect that is taking place in 
a woman following the birth of a child. But if I'm understanding the heart of this phrase, postpartum is forever, you're not excluding that. What you're saying is that it encompasses so much more. It encompasses the overall um, seismic worldview shift that occurs once a person becomes a parent. Like there are things that you would not have cared about before. The mere fact of bringing a child into the world opens up this new avenue of reality to you that just shifts everything. And so while there might be some, uh, you know, some chemical imbalances in the body and the mind and all of that jazz, that is a part of it, but it's not all of it. Am I, am I in the right ballpark? Yeah. And I, I will tell you that I am guilty with my girlfriends for starting this whole movement when we founded postpartum education for parents and we defined the word, it's an adjective. It's, it's, you know, postpartum is an adjective. And so we just wanted to make it clear that our services for the Santa Barbara community uh, it, w- it was during the pregnancy. We're here for you. There's a warm line. You can c- join a parent discussion group. We're here for you. And then you move on to the next thing because you've made your group, your fr- parent friends and you blah, blah, blah. And then we started over again. That works for our model in Santa Barbara because that's, that's a clear cut nonprofit goal and mission. That's great. But the reality is it's, a, it's uh, also been misused um, and became synonymous with the word depression. And that's inaccurate. It's not accurate at all. It's simply a adjective. And I'm postpartum because once upon a time I wasn't partum. Yeah. I didn't have a birth. <laughs> and now I'm post because I've done it. And now I moved on. And I can say it's all because I've lived this long. And I hope to to change this so we can have the bigger picture. Um, that we it's really about caring about other people, about nurturing other people. It's about people who don't have children, who are the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and they the, they 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 on the journey with you and they love you. You want to be together. You want to share this kind of stuff. Um, it's called life. And you share, you know, the joys and the traumas and have the joys be the majority of the time. But when it's not and there's a blip, you got each other and you've got family and friends who you can fall back on. So so that does that sort of wrap it up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um Thank you, Jane, for this time that you've dedicated to this platform and to this podcast. Uh, I don't know if you can hear my son crying in the background. <laughs> Not yet, but I, 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 find, it, I find it lovely. <laughs> I think from my perspective, it's clear that there needs to be more conversation about this, but you and I should definitely have more focused conversation on so many of the points that we spoke about today. So I would love to have you back on the platform to dive deeper into some of these uh, concepts and issues. Um, But in the meantime, is there any final thing that you would like to say? Thank you. Because being open and honest as you have been, Kelly really is the key. Because I can be who I am, um, but without you, this kind of social change can't happen. And it's the open and honesty among all of us as humans that need to 
really rise to the occasion and make this the occasion of, of reality that we need each other. We need each other, always have and always will. And um, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. I can't wait to continue the conversation. I, you know, we, we, we are polar opposites and we live on the other sides of the country and we have age differences and cultural background differences and yet we're exactly the same. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you, Kelly.